0: Alright, I uh, want to say to, to start off, uh, some of y'all may have noticed I have been coughing a lot, so you have to excuse if, my, if I lose my voice halfway through this. But we will uh, yeah, we will. Uh, we'll do our best to, to work through that. I want to talk to you today about what the rest of the men here this morning have chosen to talk to, issues that we see in the church. An issue that I see uh, growing in, in, in the church, and there's one that the church is going to have to face, in fact, I believe is already nestling itself into the hearts and minds of many Christians today. But before we get to that, I want to look at a little bit about us as a society. It is no secret that we live in a nation that affords us many freedoms. We, uh, we have the right to vote who our leaders are. We have the right to, to vote who is going to represent us to said leaders. And even at, at times, there's been... Uh, options for us to vote about laws that they want to go in to put into place, whether we like these laws or dislike these laws. Now, while it is far from perfect, we can truthfully say that, that we are blessed to live under the government that serves us. But I feel like at times these freedoms, it has kind of led to us to develop this attitude that maybe we might think a little bit tad higher about ourselves than we really should. Uh, when you look around our society, it's not too hard to see it's this attitude of self-centeredness that consumes many of the population today. It goes back all the way to, to when we were young, where we're taught from a young age these philosophies that tend to lend themselves over towards this type of thinking. And in school, we're pushed not so much to, to help one another in our education and learning, but to excel ourselves, to see what we to do the best that we can uh, in school. In sports, we're pushed that it's, it's, it's you versus the competition. It's all about you doing the best you can to be the best. Um, we have the idea that you've you got to go to college. You have to do the, the best that you can to get the best paying job, to get the best house. This, this whole idea of the American dream, it really revolves around this doing the best for the most important person that you will ever meet in your life, that man in the mirror, yourself. Now I'm not suggesting that we should draw all our kids out of home and put them in homeschool, and I'm not suggesting that in sports we should go to a everybody wins philosophy, or or that college is a bad thing. But we can definitely see through the way that we have have uh, we have geared ourselves in society that it does tend to lend towards this idea of self-centeredness. And when we begin to understand that, it's not too hard, uh, too far-fetched of an idea to see the church being comprised mainly of people becoming self-centered in itself. I don't think this is what Christ had in mind for His body. I don't think this is what Christ had in mind uh, when we read such passages like Ephesians 4.16. From whom, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We see in Ephesians 4.16, every part does its, does its part For the building up of itself? No. For the building up of the body. 1 Peter 4 9. If we want to turn over there, 1 Peter 4 9 is going to go on again to tell us a a type of attitude that Christ had in mind for his body. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Again, whose betterment is it that we are looking out for? Is we looking out for ourselves? That's not hospitality looking out for others, and doing so with the right type of attitude. 1 Thessalonians 4. Another place that I see an, a, an attribute that Christ will be looking for in, in His church, in His kingdom. 4 verse 18. Comfort one another with these words. Or over in uh, chapter 5 verse 11. Therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. This idea of encouraging, of comforting, these are actions Actions that we are to take for the benefit of others. And then Hebrews 13.1. <clears throat> Hebrews 13.1. In fact, this verse is short enough I could put it on the PowerPoint. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. It's this last point that I want to discuss a little more today. It's a point, a point that we must understand the importance of. We must understand the importance of brotherly love and the effect that it has on the church. You know, we talked earlier, uh, Troy talked about, and Landon Bow talked about Jesus commissioning his disciples. In Matthew 28, we, we read to go and to teach. And we see that Christ wanted to expand the borders of his kingdom from just that, that small area, but throughout the whole world. And I kind of imagine Jesus coming back and looking at, at the various uh, congregations that, that meet around the world and, and weighing them. Looking at the attributes that they, that they have and go, is this really my kingdom? And he comes back and we think of things like mercy. If this church does not have mercy, is it really my kingdom? It doesn't look like my kingdom because it doesn't display the attitudes that I have. And I think brotherly love is right up there on that list. When we consider, as I mentioned earlier, that that people today, at least in a secular sense, are quite selfish. That is to say, they look out for themselves. They look out for the betterment uh, of their own position in life. We see that potential for that to creep into the body of Christ. And we begin to understand more. We begin to see that it, the detrimental state that that would leave us in if we were to allow that to happen. But maybe by a better understanding of brotherly love, uh, that might help us to see not only maybe where, where we might be lacking in this quality, but how we might grow in it as well. So to begin, let's, let's examine what is brotherly love exactly. The word brotherly love comes from a word that we're all familiar with, Philadelphia. It shouldn't come as a huge shock to, to any of us. It shouldn't come as a shock to any of us because we still have this word today. Philadelphia being, uh, you know, in the... uh, Thank you, Stuart. I appreciate that. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And to understand this idea, this word Philadelphia more, we truly have to have a better understanding of what the word love really means. I think thanks in part to the entertainment industry, uh, not just Hollywood, but, but going back, that we have lost or blurred the definition of love to something that's merely just an emotion, something that's simply a, a feeling that we have. You know, one might say when referring to a first date, it was love at first sight. Maybe you think of somebody going on a blind date, and, and he's sitting at the table and waiting for, for his date to come, and, and she comes and sits down, and he just sees this is such a beautiful woman. He says, wow, I, just right there, when I seen her, I fell in love. It was love at first sight. Maybe we think of a, uh, maybe a teenage girl who tells all her friends that she loves her new boyfriend, just loves him so much. So often, time in life, we wait. We wait for that, that perfect person to come along that sparks the emotion of love in our lives. And I'm saying things such as, you know, I, I just didn't feel the, the click. We didn't have that click or that chemistry. I didn't have that spark of emotion that, that if I truly loved this person, I, I know I would feel. I think all these different sayings, they, they illustrate a, a lack of understanding of the word love. Because it is so much more than just simply an emotion. Is so much more than, than just something that, that we feel, and this warm and fuzzy feeling that we have attra- uh, attributed it to. Uh, love is used in two different ways in the Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. These two words that are used, first one where we, we see from Philadelphia, phileo. And this is this idea of brotherly love, but the second word, a much more stronger word, and a word that I think we have to understand to be able to understand phileo is agape. Agape love. If you want to turn over to 1 John 3:16. In 1 John, we see agape love defined. 1 John 3:16. We must or by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Agape love is defined here through this laying down of His life for us. Again, in John 3.16, a passage that we all probably have memorized, for God so loved the world, agape is the word used there, so God, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should, should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, here we see agape defined as this sacrificial love. It is a love that, that needs sacrifice with it. <clears throat> Excuse me. In His sacrificing of His life for our sins, Jesus demonstrated agape love. God demonstrated this act of goodwill. Another another, uh, phrase has been used to define agape. And in fact, I've got to say, I'm so glad that God didn't wait for it to click before He loved me. I'm so glad that God didn't wait to get that warm, fuzzy feeling about Kyle Blevins before He acted, before He made that sacrifice on my account. That's the thing about these warm, fuzzy feelings. This, this man who, who loved at first sight uh, and when he met his blind date, and he got that warm, fuzzy feeling he hadn't seen the, the cold and rough side uh, of that woman. Uh, the, the teenage girl who loves her new boyfriend, she hasn't seen the rudeness that a teenage boy sometimes exhibits. Maybe he burps. Maybe he doesn't call her back. Maybe he ignores her in school. There's all these things that we, that we all have that are imperfections. Agape love doesn't wait for this, this feeling, agape love is something that's active. <clears throat> it's something that's active. Let me give you an illustration of this. I read this uh, the other day. I actually heard this from another brother. It's a Jewish fable that, that, that goes back to, to the time uh, of, the, uh, of the Israelites. It says that two brothers inherited their father's land. And when they inherited this land, they divided the land in half, each one taking his own side, and they farmed each, uh, each their own section. Now the older of the two brothers, he married and he had six children. The younger brother never married. One night, the younger brother, he's lying awake in bed and he thinks, it is not fair that we divided this land down the middle. It's not fair. You look at me, I have no children to feed, but my brother has six children that he has to feed. He's got a wife that he's responsible for. He should have more land to be able to grow more wheat, to be able to take care of these children, to feed these mouths. He says, tonight I'm going to gather up some of my extra wheat, and I'm going to put it in a cart, and I'm going to take it, and I'm going to fill his barn with it. At the same time, that same night, the older brother lie awake in his bed, thinking, it is not fair that, that we divided this land down the middle. My younger brother has no children, while I have six. And when I grow old, these six children will take care of me and my wife, and their grandchildren will take care of us as well. My younger brother has no one to take care of him in his old age. I will gather up extra wheat from my barn tonight, and I will take it to his barn so that he might be able to sell more and put away more for his savings so that he might be able to retire or to live an old age in dignity. And so under the shadow of the moon, as the both brothers brought their carts uh, full of wheat, they noticed a figure approaching. And when they realized who it was, it says that they, when they realized what had happened, they dropped their carts and they embraced. And these brothers, they got it. <clears throat> They got it. They were each looking out for the betterment of the other brother. We must have this same attitude. And quite honestly, oftentimes we fail at this. I know I, I especially have a hard time with this. But I want to point out, something that's been pointed out. I was commenting with Landon earlier. This, uh, this isn't a new problem. Something that we've all noticed about what we've talked about. This isn't a new problem per se. But it's a problem that is still around nonetheless. And something that we need to, to, to tackle. James 2 <clears throat> verses 1 through 4, we see James noticing a, a very similar problem. <coughs> Excuse me. In James 2, I kind of picture James as he, as he maybe stands back and he sees what's going on here. He sees how some are receiving this preferential treatment over others. He says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among ourselves, or among yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts. I can imagine James sitting back maybe and and seeing this happening. This should not happen, brethren. This shouldn't be happening. We shouldn't be having this, this love because. Because that's what that was. Love because. Love because of what you can do for me. Love because of what your status is in life. That's not true love. But what we also see is Jesus Himself. He points this out. He sees this is going on back in his day. In Matthew, the 5th chapter, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this. Looking in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do you not do not even the tax collectors do the same? What he was saying here. Is, is if you love someone just because you know they're going to love you back, if you love someone just because they have, they have shown kindness to you, is that really love? He says, no, that's, that's love if. I will love you if you will do something for me. I will love you if you will love me back. I will love you if it won't cost me anything. And again, this is not true love. In fact, Jesus would go on later to show that love because won't cut it, and love if, won't cut it, but rather love in spite of. Love in spite of is what Jesus was pushing us to see, and we're going to talk about that later. We're going to come back to that idea, but we need to remember that, that Jesus taught us to love in spite of what I will benefit. So my next thing that I want to look at is how can we resolve the problem? How can we resolve the problem of of brotherly love, or possibly the lack thereof, in the congregation today? And it begins with one of probably the most well-known verses of the Bible. One of the most well-known verses, a verse that most people probably don't even know is inspired, uh, inspired words, words that come from God's own lips. It's recorded for us in Matthew seven twelve. I don't think we even need to turn there, though. It can be brought to a recollection with three simple words, the golden rule. The golden rule. Uh, the, therefore, whatever you want men to do, to you do also to them for this is the law and the prophets do unto others as you would have them do unto you as we've paraphrased it so many times many people agree <clears throat> that if we would live by this by this teaching the world would be a better place but rarely do people actually apply this principle in their own lives in their livings and in, in, in their dealings with others and when jesus spoke these words they were not new words. It wasn't something new. If you want to turn over to Leviticus 19, the idea here was not new at all. It was something that they, that they all knew well. Leviticus chapter 19 and in verse 18. <clears throat> you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And Troy already talked earlier about that phrase, I am. The, the punctuation at the end of this commandment where the authority comes from. I am the Lord. I am your God telling you to love one another. To love your neighbor as yourself. So, so Jesus teaching this, it wasn't new to them, but the authority in which that He spoke it was what, what drew so many people to this teaching. Now, when Jesus reworded this, He had in mind for us to, to do something with it. But unfortunately today, many people don't choose to live by this rule. They don't choose to, to carry on with it. They choose to think about it, but, but not to act it out. In fact, they actually choose to live by several other rules. Rules that are prescribed for us in, or described for us in Luke 10, the, 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 the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, we're not going to read, I know we all know the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're not going to read through the whole thing. But I do want to point out some of the rules that that come from this parable. There are three basic attitudes that we see towards others. The first one being the iron rule. The iron rule, what's yours is mine, and if I can, I will take it. We see this rule uh, described by, by the thieves as it, as it says that in, in verse uh, 30, uh, how a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothes, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. These thieves live by this iron rule. What's yours is mine. If I can, I'm going to take it. This is people who, who have not even the least concern for their fellow man. The next rule that we see in this, in this uh, parable, is the silver rule. What's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. This rule is illustrated by the priests and the Levites. As it says, they came down and they passed by on the other side. This is, uh, this is illustrated by two people who are considered as religious. Religious people, and their attitude is reflective of many Christians today. This attitude of non-involvement. In fact, you want to hold your finger here and turn over to Matthew 25. We're going to see Jesus later showing that, that he is not interested in this passiveness, or this, this passiveness, and he condemns it. In uh, verse 41, we read, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. We see Jesus' his view of this passiveness, of this, of this what's mine is mine, the silver, silver rule. And we see that he is not in favor of it. He's not fond of it. But the next rule that we see, illustrated here, is the golden rule. The golden rule: what I have belongs to God. And, and I am going to use it according to his will. As depicted by the Samaritan. And time and time again, we, we see Jesus epitomizing this rule. Now, the world the world is quite consumed with the iron rule. That's not too hard for us to see that. Uh, but we're going to give the benefit of the doubt that most members of the body of Christ, they, they've moved beyond that iron rule. You know, I would, I would go as far as to say that you know, a better descriptor for most Christians today would be this silver rule. The silver rule. Uh, it's a better descriptor. It's better than iron. And, and, and you might be tempted to kind of say, whew, At least we're not surrounded by thieves. I'm I'm not considered a thief. I'm not as bad as that thief. I I don't live by that iron rule. But I want to consider that or point out that that might not be something that we need to take at ease. Because I want to say that that possibly living by the silver rule is worse than living by the iron rule. Not to say that that what the thieves did was, was okay. But but let's see what we can glean from the Scriptures about having this idea of what's mine is mine. I want you to consider the account of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. When I thought of of some people from the Bible that that illustrate this silver rule, I couldn't help but think of Ananias and Sapphira. In verse 1, we read what they did. They, they did something good. They purposed to do a good thing, to sell a, pro, a property and to give a portion to the apostles. But in verse 2, we read that what, what they said they did and what they actually did were two different stories. <clears throat> Let's look now in, in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. And he brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. You've not lied to men, but to God. Peter accuses them, not, not just lying to us, but you lied to the Holy Spirit, to God. Now consider that, compare that to ourselves. When we choose to serve God, when we are, are baptized into Jesus' death, we are, we're signing an agreement. We're signing an agreement that says, we will be faithful, we will be obedient to the teachings of Christ. We will be obedient to His Gospel, but if we are claiming to be Christians... Just like the priests and the Levites would have claimed to have been religious people, to have been righteous. But we exhibit attitudes and behaviors that are contrary to his teaching. And we are guilty of lying to God. Now, now there were many other people that, that were there that day. Many other people that were, that were alive that day. But I want to ask, was anyone else struck dead that day? There were people there that day who were living by this iron rule. That They weren't selling their possessions. They weren't even concerned with people that could use the money for the needy saints. They weren't concerned with the apostles. There were people that day who didn't care about Jesus, didn't care anything to do with His teachings. We don't see any of them struck dead. We don't see any of them struck dead. What we see is two people who do a good thing but they do it with dishonesty. They say, I've got something, it's mine, and I'm going to do my best to keep it. And we see that 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 attitude, that attitude is dangerous, to say the least. It's obvious by the teachings of Jesus and the apostles that playing the middle of the road is wrong. James 4.17, if you want to flip over there, James 4.17 tells us this, expresses this, this idea. When we read, Therefore to him who knows to do good... And does not do it. To him it is sin. If we know what is right, we need to be acting on it. Or Revelation 3, verse 15 and 16, where we read that at the very least, being lukewarm is disappointing to God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth will vomit you out. We see that, that the problem here with brotherly love is that so often we take this, this action of, of playing in the middle of the road, of being cold, or, or not cold nor hot, but being lukewarm in our love for our brethren. <clears throat> and when we understand this principle, it should lead us to ask questions. It should lead us to look at ourselves and say, how can I put this practice into, into my life? How can I put this into practice in my life? And the first thing I want to suggest is it's, it's not by constantly griping and complaining about others. Especially to others. Philippians 2, 4, or 2.14, it, it talks specifically on this. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Maybe, maybe it's someone who does a lousy job building up the body. Maybe it's someone who is just doing absolutely nothing for building up the body. Brotherly love doesn't complain. Brotherly love doesn't grumble. Brotherly love encourages and never gossips. Maybe it's someone who, or maybe the, the next step for not doing it, or of not doing it, is not being overly or unjustly critical. Sometimes we get into this really bad habit of looking at everyone else and saying they don't do enough. Here I am up here, you know, I'm up here preaching or I'm up here song leading or I'm leading prayers. I'm going out into the community and I'm, I'm going door to door and I'm knocking on doors and I'm having Bible studies. I'm, look at what I'm doing. And this guy over here, he's just showing up to services and going home. He's not doing enough. Let's, let's try to do our best. Not to look at what people aren't doing, but look at what they are doing. Look at the good works that they have and find ways that we can see what they do to contribute to the kingdom. This is going to help us. And another thing that we can do is we can not blame others and never ourselves. You know, in that habit of someone who who maybe isn't doing much to help, are we ever looking at that problem and and realizing that we're guilty of making zero efforts whatsoever to help resolve that problem? Are we just kind of set back and criticizing them and and not, you know, maybe we're griping and complaining to others, but we're not doing anything to help that, that brother out. Or sister. And the next one I'll tell you I struggle with. Delighting and making life miserable for others. Uh, You might think, how on earth can you struggle with delighting and making life miserable for others? But I tell you there's times, it it might sound silly, but there are times when we go too far with with harmless ribbing and we can begin to discourage our brethren. I know know I've been guilty myself of doing that, of going so far and and, and picking it and all out of love but begin to become a discouragement to those that we are trying our best to lift up. So these are things that we cannot do. We, can, we cannot be constantly griping and, and not be overly or unjustly critical, blaming others and never ourselves and delighting in making life miserable. But what about things that we can do? You kept your finger over in, in Philippians. <clears throat> Look in uh, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. We can think about how others feel. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Look, or Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So we can be considering how others feel. This is getting right to the heart of the matter. This is getting right to the heart of it. This is getting to the less of self. Focusing less on self and more on our brothers and sisters. By complimenting others. And we can do this in, in a very materialistic way. We can comf- uh, compliment our brothers and sisters on the way they look today um, and noticing maybe you got a new haircut and it looks good on you, and that dress or that suit, but we can do this even more by the works that we see and spiritually complimenting one another's. That prayer that you led, it really helped me out. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you led that prayer and you focused my mind. The songs that you picked out, they, they helped so much. That sermon, that sermon helped me to get to, to draw something that I needed into my life. The fact that you were here today, the fact that you came encouraged me. And I'm so thankful for the the hard work that you always put in to serving God. Complimenting others is going to help us to increase brotherly love. And doing so as a true friend, being a true friend, not just doing this lip service, but, but being someone who truly cares about our brothers and sisters. As, uh, as the next point points out, being sympathetic and, com- and compassionate. Romans 12, verse 15. To, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We need to be truly concerned about the sorrows and the joys of our fellow brethren. And then finally, by teaching. Teaching others the gospel. It's very very possible that people just don't even know about brotherly love and about what, they're, what they really should be doing in helping the Lord's body. And we can be teaching and encouraging and exhorting. These things should sound familiar to us. It's something that God expects from us. True righteousness demands. True righteousness demands a selfless love which rests solidly upon God's gracious love for us. So why? Why must we resolve this? I've shown you a problem, a problem that I see facing the church, brotherly love or or the lack thereof. I've shown you a way in which I see that we can resolve the problem by being less selfish, by being more selfless, but why? Why does this brotherly love thing really matter? Why does it matter? That's the last point that I want to consider with you today. Why must we let brotherly love continue? For starters... Hebrews 13.1 commands it. Hebrews 13.1 is not a suggestion as we put on the board earlier. Let brotherly love continue. That is not read. Maybe if you feel like brotherly love might take place, maybe if brotherly love isn't too inconvenient for you, but just every now and then sprinkle a little dash of that into your life. That would be great. No, it's a commandment. It's a commandment of God. And then one that we shouldn't ignore or take lightly. It's commanded also over in John 13. In John 13, verse 34, <clears throat> <Excuse> me, <clears throat> we read, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, now, we can see here that this is a commandment, but I want to stop for a moment here and look at this. Why does Jesus call this a new commandment? Why does He say, A new commandment I give you? What's so new About the commandment to love, because remember Leviticus 19, we 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 know that love is not a new commandment. Jesus had had already pointed out to them back over in Matthew seven to to love your neighbor as yourself when he was talking about the golden rule about doing unto others. We know that this isn't a new commandment. So what's so new about love? About this commandment to love, and I think it's it's not so much the commandment to love, but it's it's the second half of the passage. As I have loved you. As I have loved you. I think when when Jesus says this, he he was alluding back to what we read in verses 1 through 5. In uh, in verse verse 13, verses 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the supper being ended, the devil having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. He rose from the supper. He lay aside his garment. And he took a towel and he girded himself. And after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. <clears throat> what Jesus was saying is I've set a standard for your love. I've set a standard, and this is the new commandment that I give you, to love one another as I have set this standard for you. He was showing his followers the love that he had for them. And he was going to love them even to the end. And even that he knew that he was at the end. You think about me, if I knew that that I had reached the last hour of my life, I'd be very tempted not to be thinking about Brother Hardy. My brother Aiken, my brother Spears. I'm not going to be thinking about you guys. I'm going to be thinking this is the last hour of my life. What am I going to do with my last hour of my life? I don't want this to be the last hour of my life. I would much rather have many more hours of my life left to come. We see Jesus setting an example. In the last hour of his life, he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about how, once again, he can love and how he can teach his disciples to love one another. And as we read in verse 15, he sets this example for us. He says, "For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you, or as I've done to you." Well, we read when I read this, this leaves no doubt into my mind of what he means when he says, "I have loved you." This leaves no doubt in my mind what kind of standard that he is holding us to—the standard of humility, a standard that is pure, a standard that is serving, a standard that is active. 1 John 3.18 goes on to say, Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in, in deed and in truth. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. The worst thing that we can do is we can say we love, but not put that love into action. Jesus didn't say, I love my disciples. He didn't say, I love each and every one of you. He put it into action. He actually lived it. He did it. To say that we love, but not actually show love, that's, that's a hypocrite. That's a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. That's someone, as 1 John 4 8 says, doesn't know God. And I think Brother David's going to talk more about that point later. But it's necessary for us to realize that we don't know God if we don't love. I want to illustrate this point. I want you to consider that someone is treating Sister Hardy's children harshly. I'm talking about Chris. I'm not talking about Jim, Sarah, and Aaron. I'm talking about Joe and Ben. Someone is treating Chris's children harshly. Maybe they're, they're talking mean to them. They're, they're kind of pushing them around. They're, not, they're hurt, and they just walk away and leave them. But they come up to Jim and Chris. They say, I love you so much. I love you, Chris, and I love you, Jim. Jim and Chris are going to be very tempted to say, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't love me if you do that. You don't love me if you don't treat my children with love because they come from me. I've put countless hours, considerable amount of time, training them, teaching them, and caring for them. And if you treat, this with mean, treat them with meanness and contempt, that doesn't show love for me. That doesn't show respect for me. <clears throat> How much more so can it be said of God? How much more so can it be said of anyone uh, mistreating anyone for that matter? But if someone has not love for their brothers and sisters, can it be said that they know God? That they love God? No. So so I want to leave you with this idea. Let us love one another. I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for sitting here attentively. I want to say thank you for coming this weekend. I, I know there were so many that, as Jim pointed out, this is not our day. This is your day to spend how you want to spend it. And so many that came and spent the time that they absolutely could. This shows in itself Love. It shows love uh, at the very least for God's Word. You have chosen to come together with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You have chosen to enjoy in the message of God's Word. But as I said earlier, don't just take this message and simply file it away. Don't take any of the messages that you learned, that you've heard this morning, and file them away. Don't come up afterwards to any of us and say, You did a good job and then simply just continue on in the same fashion in which you've always done. Be doers of the Word. You might look around and say, well, I'm already pretty good at this loving thing, and that's great. Be better. I want to leave you with this final thought. Romans 5, verses 7 through 8. Romans 5, verses 7 through 8 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. I think about that often. What that actually means. I think I think the the contemporary English version says some men, no one's really willing to die for an honest man. And sometimes someone is willing to die for a truly good man. You think about that. Nobody's really willing to give up their life for anybody else. And yet God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, we weren't good, we weren't honest, we weren't righteous. We weren't any of these descriptors that we hear. We were sinners, and Christ died for us. When you go back to your congregations, you look at that brother or sister that, that maybe you know you just don't get along with that well. You look at that brother or sister that comes from the real conservative background, is like things got to be this way, and, and I don't like them when they're not done anyway, but this way. Or you look at that sister that says things out of love, but you think, why did you say that to me? <laughs> why on earth would you would you say that? Or you look at that brother who acts uh, maybe a little bit younger than he should and he breaks your couch. and uh, (laughs) You you go back and you look at the people in your life that that you maybe hold a grudge against. And remember, love in spite of. God loved them enough to give His only begotten Son. Shouldn't I, in the very least, love them as well? That's all I have. I appreciate y'all's attention.